Why don't you open your Bible or navigate on your device to Psalm 127? If you like, you can follow along with the transcript at uh, transcript.calvaryhanford.com. At any rate, we're going to be in Psalm 127. The topic in this psalm, the psalmist describes our efforts without the Lord's leading and enabling as eating the bread of sorrows. The title of my message, Teardrops Keep Falling on My Bread. Let's pray. Father, once again, looking at this ancient text that has so much uh, meaning for us in, uh, in our modern walk with you, but none of that's going to make any difference unless the Holy Spirit is our teacher, unless there's anointing, Lord, here uh, on each heart to receive your word. We're expectant, Lord. Many of us need healing, whether it's emotional or physical. Many of us are looking for a blessing, Lord. We're burdened by what's happening in the world and in the lives of other people that we love and know. Lord, I, I, in the way that only you can speak to all of those things, to every issue of our heart this morning. How you can do that is, is amazing. No matter where we choose to open the scripture, Lord, you're there with your ministering power. And so do your work, Lord, we pray. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that their will would be free to receive Christ as their savior. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Three bird species, two frogs, a shark, and one of the world's largest freshwater fish were among those declared extinct in 2019. You may as well cancel your trip to Oahu. The last Tanella apex fulva died in captivity way back on New Year's Day. His name was George. He had an obituary and this was it. George, a Hawaiian tree snail, also a 14-year-old local celebrity, the last known snail of his kind, will no longer be able to entertain school children or eat tree fungus. He died on New Year's Day, according to the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources. George the snail, named after the Pinta Island tortoise, Lonesome George, never lived in a forest, being born in captivity and growing up in a lab. As it happens, George was a hermaphrodite but it seems that two snails are required to produce offspring. I want to buy the rights to the movie. <laughs> Change the ending a little bit to where some crazy environmentalist grabs the snail and gets him out to the wilderness just before he dies so that he can have real fungus out in the forest. That's a great name, fungus in the forest. Or we could use the classic, there's a fungus among us, right? Remember that? <laughs> In 2013, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey, told a conference in Shropshire that, that's a tongue twister right there, Shropshire, that more must be done to attract young people into the church. He warned that the Church of England was, and I quote, one generation away from extinction. I've heard that line many times over the years. It's not original to Lord Carey. I wasn't able to find an original attribution. The question is, is it true? Well, it's only true if we leave God out of the picture. Or maybe it would be better to say that it's ultimately not true because the Lord is the one building his church and he promised it would not fail. The quote is intended to spur slumbering, apathetic Christians to action. The best way to do that, however, isn't to guilt us, but to glorify God. 
It seems like oftentimes uh, the, the position we take is to guilt Christians to get an immediate response because it can take a long time for them to realize, oh, I need to glorify God. And so there's a lot of guilting that happens in the church because of that. Psalm 127 glorifies God in its opening words. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Believers are builders and watchmen for sure. We have a big part to play in the work. It's a cooperative effort. But we remain dependent upon the Lord and trust him to complete his work both in us and through us. So I'll organize my comments around two rather simple questions we want to ask ourselves. Number one, is your labor for the Lord more exertion than enabling? And number two, is your life in the Lord more earthly than eternal? Verses one and two talks about our labor and whether it's exertion or enabling. In her commentary on Psalms 127, Celine Dion wrote, the church will go on. Listen to that later and you'll understand. One verse will suffice. Writing to the church in Ephesus, the apostle Paul declared Jesus will, and I quote, present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Here's some math that might encourage you about the state of the church. Let's say you only lead one person to Christ every year, and he or she does the same, and so on. After one year, there would be two disciples. After the second year, four. Third year, eight. Fourth year, 16, and so on. Doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere, but by year 33, you will have more than 8.5 billion Christians, and in the 10th year, you will hit the 34 billion mark. And so uh, just the church is not in any danger of uh, dissolving. Jesus will bring us to the Lord, his Father, and uh, there will be billions and billions of us. Now, we've read the last chapters of the book. The church will be resurrected or raptured to heaven, then returning from heaven to the earth with Jesus in his second coming. We then reign on the earth with him for a thousand years, after that, we live on for eternity, which I've just been designating anymore as a place with no more tears. You want a quick definition of eternity? Jesus is there, and there are no more tears. So verse 1 begins like this, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, every week I remind us, that Psalms 120 to 134 were gathered together in a playlist to be sung by travelers on their pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the annual Jewish feasts. It's extra important to keep that in mind for Psalm 127. Here's why. When we see the word house and then we read about children in verses 3 through 5, we immediately begin to read this as a standalone psalm that instructs individual home life, sort of like a marriage and family psalm. We forget its contact, uh, context rather is a song of ascent. And while it does have application to our homes in a limited way, it's not really about your house. It's about God's house, the temple, and it's about his house, the house of Israel. Solomon is credited as the author. You might remember that his dad, King David, wanted to build the temple. God said to David, you're not the one to build me a house to dwell in. Instead, God promised to build David a house, a spiritual house. 
If you understand that play on, uh, that God is doing, you understand a lot about this psalm. So David said, it's my desire to build you a house. And God said, hey, I'm going to build you a house. And so there's always a kind of a cooperative effort between man and God, but we want to focus on what God has done and is doing for us and through us, not what we must do for God. And that is really the main first context of this psalm. Now, the backstory is a great example of what is meant by building in vain. David's desire to build a house for God was a great desire. When he shared his plans to build a house for God, Nathan, his prophet, immediately encouraged David to quote Debbie Boone, it can't be wrong when it feels so right. And so they were ready to go. Now, Nathan left and God immediately intervened and spoke to Nathan and sent him back to David to stop him from building. God's plan was for Solomon to build the house. And so David had a great plan. He was encouraged in it, but it wasn't God's plan. Looking at Nathan just for a minute, that must have been something really hard. For one thing, building for God was a good thing. Uh, have you ever been the only person in a meeting who disagrees and felt the peer pressure to be on board? That's why I think normal people, when they get into a group, go crazy. Because they all of a sudden uh, are led along by peer pressure because they, they have a hard time standing up for themselves. And so Nathan, was tar he, he's supposed to go to David and say, David, your good idea is a bad idea, God told me. For another thing, how hard must it have been to confront David, a man after God's own heart, with a halt work order? He slapped a stop work order on him. And David might argue that he had heard from the Lord too. So then you get into that idea, who told, who, who's talking? And for a third thing, David could be a little crabby sometimes. He's not somebody that you wanted to cross. There's an episode in his life before he was king where a certain landowner owed him uh, money and goods for protection and he refused to pay. And David said, saddle up, get your sword. We're going to see him and we're going to kill him and everybody in his house. And it's only because of his, uh, this guy's wife, uh, Abigail, stopping David and reminding him who he was that that slaughter didn't take place. And so this was a kind of a tense moment, but David received it from the Lord. He began to make plans for the temple that his son Solomon would build. It's so important, especially when the desire seems good to hear from the Lord. Too many things get green-lighted that do not have God's blessing. Do you know how many decent, solid, good Christian ministries there are? Hundreds, maybe thousands. And, and a situation will come and somebody will say, hey, we want to support, uh, you know, can the church support this mission or this missionary? And then we, we do, we pray about it. And sometimes we just get no leading at all in that direction. And then when we tell people we're just not led, it almost sounds like we're making an excuse, but we really aren't led. Uh, and it's not a matter of being stretched too many directions or anything like that. It's really a matter of hearing from the Lord. Not everything good that we want to do is from the Lord. And sometimes we need to understand that. From the temple now, the psalm moves out to the wall surrounding Jerusalem. Perhaps the pilgrims would recall how the wall long lay in ruins until God raised up Nehemiah. And then contrary to everything we believe about contractors, Nehemiah brought the wall in under budget and in record time of only 52 days. It was the Lord. He did it. Now, he did it through Nehemiah and the returnees throwing themselves into the work, 
but it was understood by Israel and the surrounding enemies that God enabled them. Humans did what was humanly impossible. God got the glory. That's kind of a, a thumb, uh, you know, a footnote on what this is about. It's about us doing what is humanly impossible so that God can get the glory. The wall was necessary for protection. The watchman was critical for warning. But no city is safe unless the Lord is in the hearts of the people. Israel's history is full of examples of impenetrable defenses being penetrated and of improbable victories. Verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Solomon is not encouraging laziness. Keeping with the same theme as verse 1, he's talking about labor that is futile if it doesn't have the Lord's leading and enabling. The bread of sorrows is a poetic way of describing someone working their fingers to the bone. We should rise up early and sit up late serving the Lord, but without leading and enabling, we're working our fingers to the bone for nothing. There's a passage in the book of Nehemiah that illustrates what Psalm 127 is saying. I'll read it to you. It's in chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Uh, note the cooperation between God and man on building the wall and the absolute total commitment that Nehemiah and the returnees had to it. So it was that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held their spears, their shields, the bows, and wore armor. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they carried at, uh, worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except everyone took them off for washing. And so Nehemiah is describing uh, tireless labor that he says is restful, because that's what the psalm is talking about. They worked hard from dawn until beyond uh, sunset, so hard that they didn't have time to, to really wash their clothes, and so they went several days. I was watching a thing the other day, by the way, this has nothing to do with anything, and I'll forget where I am, but it's worth talking about. They did a thing on Levi's uh, and, and uh, denim, the history of denim and all this, and they were at the Levi Museum or whatever it is, and this guy that's worked for Levi, he had a pair of jeans on that he hasn't washed for 25 years. He said occasionally he has to take a stain out, but uh, he said the nice thing about denim, I'm just helping you here, the nice thing about denim is that it doesn't really have to be washed. <laughs> Governor Newsom's going to outlaw water, so <laughs> everybody's going to be wearing Levi's. And so you get the idea. Solomon says you don't have to work hard, but he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean you don't do hard work. It means that you do it in the Lord and you have real strength for it. It's not a burden. He gives his beloved sleep. That is spiritual rest. What we are saying can be summarized by a quote from A.W. Tozer. If you're not familiar with Tozer, you should be. Great devotional writer and pastor, T-O-Z-E-R. He says, 
If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on, no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Now that is obviously the worst case scenario, a little bit of hyperbole on Tozer's part. We would do well, however, to always check our desires to see if the labor is from the Lord and therefore enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. I'm kind of happy, I mean, you're gonna think I'm a little bit crazy, but as a pastor, I'm happy that I can look back at the history of our church and see ministries that have died, ministries that don't exist anymore. Uh, because some ministries, they have a shelf life. They have a time in which that you're supposed to do them. Or there's a person that the Lord raised up to do it and then that person is gone or something like that. And so, uh, so often churches feel like they have to perpetuate every ministry or it's a failure. And when in fact this is telling us that to perpetuate ministry is the failure. We need to be seeking the Lord. You know, some things we do all the time. The Lord's never going to tell us to quit meeting and teaching the word. So if I get up here one Sunday and say, you know, I we just feel, really feel led to just worship all the time or to just teach the word all the time. So instead of, you know, what we normally do, we're going to sing for 75 minutes or we're going to teach for 75 minutes or whatever. Uh, there's things we're always going to do the way we do them. And then there's a lot of things that come and go. And I think it's a godly thing. I have to conclude that a lot of what today is labeled as spiritual burnout is the direct result of exertion rather than enabling. Nobody working on the wall got burnt out and they worked hard day and night under adverse conditions. We need God's enabling. And it's something we need to explore in conversation with Jesus. Uh, sometimes people, if they're feeling burned out, if they're feeling burdened, uh, if you complain and, and are you know, bitter, maybe it's not the ministry. Maybe that's not your ministry. Because if it is something God is calling you to, you'll be excited about it. I'm not saying you'll never be discouraged or depressed, but uh, it, you, you'll know that uh, you're just being in Elijah at that moment and God is going to have to really show you how wonderful your ministry is. Uh, but uh, nobody needs to labor and feel burdened and crushed. Find out what God wants you to do. Verses three through five, is your life in the Lord more earthly than eternal? 2019, average of 1.93 children under 18 per family in the United States. That's a decrease from 2.33 children under 18 per family in 1960. 1960, I was 0.33 of a child, but anyway. Actually, that was more like junior high. Two-parent households in the U.S. are declining, and the number of families with no children is increasing. Should we be having more children? Isn't that what the rest of this psalm exhorts us to do? We'll talk about that in a minute, and there may be application in these verses to the modern tendency to have fewer children. In fact, Christians, I think, ought to start by honoring traditional marriage uh, and eschewing divorce. Uh, so you, you know, go all the way back and say, you know, why can't Christians just work things out, stay together? I don't want to put a burden on anybody who's divorced and remarried or, you know, anything like that. There's grace. There's no unpardonable sin. But in a general philosophical, theological way, God wants marriages to last. I think that's pretty obvious. One man, one woman, monogamous for life uh, with 
a couple of reasons for divorce that are bad reasons uh, to get into. Uh, and so uh, let's honor traditional marriage. And from that, I think, would come a more, uh, well, just a better understanding of how many children we should have. What we're reading here, however, is not a command. And in context, we're looking at the house of Israel, not our homes. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Seems straightforward enough. On first reading, you think that if you want to be blessed, you have lots of kids. But it's really a promise. It's not a command. God promised Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Later, the Lord promised the children of Israel in the wilderness. He said, he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. And so these are not commands from God for them to reproduce, but God's sovereign promise to reward his people, to multiply them for his purposes and their security and their future inheritance. And so the Lord is saying, hey, when you get into the land, you're going to have tons of kids. He doesn't, it's not a thing where he says, hey, when you get into the land, you better start working on having some children. Otherwise, I'm going to curse you. No, he says, hey, you're, this is going to be great. Land is flowing with milk and honey, and you're going to push out babies like crazy. <laughs> we tend to read everything in God's word as a command. We want so desperately to be able to quantify our relationship with Jesus. We make checklists to be sure we're on track spiritually. We might chastise ourselves, for example, if we miss one day of devotions. We're always wanting to know what God wants us to do for him. And we miss all the promises and blessings of what God saying, this is what I have done for you and what I want to do and will do for you. And so God was telling the house of Israel, the 12 tribes, what he was going to do for them, not telling them what they must do for him. Never in the Old Testament does anyone need any exhortation to have more kids. Quite the opposite. There were contests in some families to, to see how many kids they could have. It was always a shame to be barren. It was considered a shame precisely because God said he'd bless them with children. I'm telling you that because this. A Jew would never read this statement as a command. They'd never read this and say, oh, we, we need to get busy. They'd read this and say, yeah, that's exactly what God did. He blessed us with an abundance of children. Under the law, God promised to bless the godly with children. He's given no such promise to Christians. We would say that having 1.9 kids or 2.3 kids is up to you. Or remember the old series, eight is enough? Raise your hand if you're old enough to remember that. Yeah, there's been, yeah. So who knows what number belongs to you? But consider this. So basically, basically you're under grace. You're under grace as far as number of children. But is your numerical goal godly? Are your reasons for your decision earthly and selfish, or are they eternal? There are plenty of selfish reasons uh, secular individuals give out in the world for not having children. You, you have to get through college, and then you have to establish your career. And then just that you're getting near the age where you probably, uh, it's dangerous to have children, then you get started and you have one uh, kid and you think, wow, that's, that's amazing. And so that's, even that's okay if that's God's plan. Uh, but is it? Do you, you know, are people consulting the Lord? Not about a number even. They say, Lord, give me a number. Because something, you know, I mean, what if uh, you had pizza the night before and you're thinking eight slices? 
But Lord, you know, just as you live your life, what does the Lord have for you? Is it selfish? And, and a lot of people are selfish. If someone were to ask you, why are you going to have X number of kids? Would your answer be based on your earthly priorities or on eternal promises? That's what I'm saying. And so it's up to you, but consider uh, what the Bible says. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Speaking in the enemy, with the enemies in the gate is the, is the thought here. In the gate is where an ancient Israeli city conducted civil affairs. It's where you would go with your complaint or to settle an issue or to transfer title. Think of it as a city council meeting or the board of supervisors or a court. Uh, and so people would be there. The elders of the city would be there. And uh, people would just hang around and other people would come and they would do business. There's a passage in the book of Ruth that's in chapter 4 at the beginning that describes in quite detail a meeting in the gates during which Boaz redeems Ruth to marry her. And uh, it, it's, it's really a fascinating conversation that takes place so that because there's an individual who is ahead of Boaz and has the right to redeem her as a wife, but Boaz is in love with Ruth and so they have to negotiate. And he ends up uh, legally uh, being able to marry Ruth as his wife. And, and it all happened in the gates. So the enemies referred to are in the gates. They're therefore not foreign enemies, but fellow citizens. The picture being drawn here is of the elderly having children to defend them against those who would take advantage of them. This is a warning against elder abuse more than anything. Elder abuse was a big problem in ancient Israel, along with taking advantage of widows and orphans and the poor. Uh, and God took it very seriously. If you had kids to care for you, you'd be protected. They were to take care of you as warriors in a battle. Their weapons were the words they spoke with their enemies in the gate. And so that's what's going on here. The Israel, ancient Israel, like other cultures, had a tendency to take advantage of uh, weak and uh, disadvantaged people and the elderly fit in there and so that that wouldn't happen if you had children they would go and they would represent you and make sure that you weren't stripped of your property or stripped of your rights or your money wasn't taken away from you those kinds of things and they were to do it as warriors to to be that fierce about protecting their parents approximately one in ten Americans age 60 plus have experienced some form of elder abuse Estimates range as high as 5 million elders who are abused each year. One study estimated that only 1 in 14 cases are reported. In almost 60% of elder abuse cases, the perpetrator is a family member. Two-thirds of perpetrators are adult children or spouses. And so that's a very sad state of affairs. May it not be among us. Concluding his comments on Psalm 127, William McDonald writes, this psalm is a tremendous unfolding of the word of the Lord through Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There is such a danger that we depend on the power of the dollar or on human ingenuity. But the Lord's will is not accomplished in that way. It is by his spirit that we build for eternity. It's not what we do for God through our own resources, but what he does through us by his mighty power. All we can produce is wood, hay, stubble. He can use us to produce gold, silver, precious stones. When we act in our own strength, we are spinning our wheels. 
When we bring God into everything, our lives become truly efficient. Carnal weapons produce carnal results. Spiritual weapons produce spiritual results. The Apostle Paul captured this same thought when he wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia. He wrote and said, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In other words, by your own ingenuity and by your own desires and by your own activity. How would you know if your priorities were eternal? Well, there's a lot of ways. Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, for instance, saying the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And one gauge, just one, to identify whether your priorities are earthly or eternal is to review your life in Christ thus far, looking for decisions that were absolutely foolish from an earthly perspective, but in fact revealed God's wisdom. I'll give you a hint. Probably the most foolish thing in all of human history is the thought that God as a man would die on a cross for the sins of the world. Uh, No, the cross, in fact, the Bible says the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. It seems like the stupidest thing God could do. And yet you and I know it is the wisdom of God that there was no other way that we could be saved for time and for eternity. And and we see the blessing of it and the grace of it and the wonder of it. And so there are going to be times in our lives, not, not our whole life, and maybe not to the point, obviously, of of death, uh, but there are going to be times when you're going to have to make a foolish decision for the Lord. Finances can sometimes reveal Christ-led foolishness. We had a couple in our fellowship. They were married, both Navy doctors. When their time in the service was over, they intended to go immediately into uh, missionary medicine. Uh, More than one person, more than one believer, encouraged them to wait, establish a practice here in the United States first, work for 10 or 15 or 20 years, rake in the dough, which I don't think doctors are making that much money anymore, but rake it in and then go out into the mission field with uh, total support from themselves. They went on into the mission field and have been very successful. And it still seems foolishness to certain believers, but it is the wisdom of God. I've known a lot of believers over the years who put off doing certain spiritual things for a future time that never came. You don't know what the future holds. I'm not saying you can do everything you want to do or, uh, you know, obviously we have to work. God gives, gives us careers and jobs and things like that. So not everybody has to quit everything they're doing and do a ministry. That's, that's not the point. But the point is somewhere along the line, you're going to have to make what seems like a foolish decision. And people are going to see you as a fool because you didn't take the promotion or you didn't move or you did move or whatever it was. And you're going to have to stand on your integrity and say, this is what the Lord has for me. And watch as his wisdom is revealed through your life. Anytime we hear the story of the rich young ruler whom Jesus told, divest yourself of all your worldly possessions, we're immediately told it was not for everybody. It was unique to him. And that maybe a few other people in human history, maybe two or three, would have to do something like that. And so everybody, wow, dodge that bullet. It's not that God is coming to tell us all to do stuff like that, but are we open to anything that is foolish? And here's the problem. Let's say God, well, I don't even know why, I don't have any any illustration, but let's say God asked you to do something absolutely foolish. Do you dismiss it because it's absolutely foolish? Because that's how we think. 
Let's say God said, hey, I want you to give. I used the example of one of our elders one time when we owned the land over on Fargo and Glacier. They said, what would we do if a, a, the Lord put it on our heart to give the land to a Christian ministry? And we all said, yeah, that's not going to happen. But that's the idea. And we would be open to that. I, you know, I make fun of us, but we would have done. So that's the idea. And, and can you imagine if I came before the fellowship and said, hey, great news about our property on Fargo and Glacier. We gave it away. Well, how come nobody's applauding? Because even as a Christian, you think that sounds foolish. And so that's going to happen in your life. And sometimes because we don't want to seem foolish or we think it is foolish, we are missing the will of God. There are rich young rulers. Maybe you don't have to divest yourself of everything, but it might be a choice that, uh, you know, is unusual. COVID-19 is going to be held responsible for 20% of the churches in America closing their doors forever, going extinct. That's the earliest estimate. Churches are losing court cases regarding our constitutional right to meet. Huge fines are being levied against churches who meet indoors. Gino and I were trying to figure out the other day how they even arrive at a fine amount. Since there's no laws about this, they're just mandates. They fined a church in Northern California $50,000 because they held indoor services with social distancing and masks. But because it was indoors and they defied uh, court orders, they've been fined $50,000. And God bless them, they're still meeting indoors. Worst of all, there is infighting among believers about whether churches should follow exactly government mandates or not. Social media, all you have to do is post your opinion on whether we should meet or not indoors and you'll get a, 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 an argument started, lickety split. And so Christians just can't give each other room. It's because we always think we're doing the wrong thing. It's part of the whole command issue. It's like, well, wait a minute, what should we be doing? Oh, I don't know. So I don't know if it's funny or not, but people have been saying, but, you know, people are visiting and say, why? Because I asked somebody, they said, Calvary's meeting. What? I don't know what I think about that. Why would Calvary Chapel be meeting? And some are against us and some are for us. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know what else to say about that. God's for us and who can be against us. Yeah, but I, I mean, I don't want to argue with anybody. If your church, if you go to a church that has decided not to meet, that's on them. I, that's fine. Maybe God is leading them that way. What do I know? God is leading us this way. But that's the worst part about this is that the church is fighting. The church will go on and then will go up. Jesus is coming to resurrect the dead in Christ and then catch away living believers. And that's imminent. Meanwhile, we think we are essential because we have the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And yeah, you can hear the gospel one-on-one -on -one out in the world, but here's, here's a new wrinkle I thought of last service. When we gather as a church, one of our purposes is to equip saints for the work of the ministry. And what that really means is we get together, we worship and we pray and we teach the word so that each of us as God's saints can go out into the world and do the work of the ministry by touching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so on that basis, I, I declare that the meeting of the church is essential because no matter how long you've been a Christian, you still need to be equipped. You still need to learn. You still need to draw close to the Lord. To say nothing of the fact that people need to come and feel like they belong to something. How many of you have come from a background where 
you felt like you were an outcast or a burden and have come into the church and found love and refreshment and encouragement from people you would never have met otherwise. Uh, and, and none of this, is, can't, it, it can't happen anywhere else. It's not that it doesn't. It can't because only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. No other gathering on earth is as important as the gathering of the church. For all of those, you can applaud if you want. But it's true. It's true. And so we're, we're not defying anything because it's constitutional or because we have medical knowledge other people don't have or because there's some deep state conspiracy. We ought to meet so that we can get the gospel out because that's what we're called to do. And that gospel transforms people from within. And the gospel is simple. Jesus came to die for our sins. He rose from the dead, validating everything he said he would do and accomplish so that God is able to declare us right before him, give us a robe of righteousness so that we can go to heaven. We'll be born again by the spirit of God. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can't honestly say, I am a Christian, I am born again, I've received Christ. And you need to come forward as we're singing and meet with one of the guys and share with them your dilemma and let us pray with you. And, and, and so that's, that's what it's come to. Uh, we are essential for reasons that the world can never understand. The world thinks we're another group that meets, like, uh, you know, some, I don't want to impugn anybody, but we're not. We're absolutely unique. And, and you know that, right? I mean, you just need to be refreshed in that. that how, how could there be any other meeting where a life could be transformed, changed, reformed, but not transformed. And maybe it doesn't happen here, but it happens as you're equipped here in fellowship here by prayer and the study of the word and worship to go out into your world, into your place, and to be that fool for Jesus Christ.